Thanks for that, and thanks. It's great to great to be back at Monty again. Haven't been here for a little while, and I was saying to Garth, I'm not sure what I said last time. I'm not sure what I did. I apologise, but for one reason or another, things have fallen through. So it's great to um, have the opportunity to be back here again this morning, and it's great to see the new facilities. You've done a great job. I talked about responding or overcoming opposition. I know the difficulties you can get through a building program, and how hard they are to do as a church. So, congratulations on on getting through it. I think it's fantastic to see the new auditorium that you've got here. It's just really, really impressive. So I'm taking all sorts of notes to go back to Canterbury Gardens with. Um, I think we've got a plan which is on the way all of a sudden. It looks great. And it's been great to hear the different comments and different thoughts about people on this idea of opposition because talking about opposition, uh, I think it's a really important topic because it's, responding to opposition is something that we often don't do very well. And as a result of that, opposition is something that tends to bring out the worst in us a lot of the time. Uh, when I was growing up, I played a lot of tennis. And I know a lot of you who play football and rugby are probably looking at me going, yeah, you look like a tennis player. <laughs> and that's right, it was a safer form of sport, so I quite enjoyed it though. But one of the things I liked about it was that it was one-on-one. So there's no hiding in a team. There was no disappearing, letting the other team players do it. It was you versus the other person. You had no one to blame but yourself. And I, as a result, actually enjoyed watching it because I think because of that, tennis players can tend to wear their heart on the sleeve a little bit because you know it's all, it rises or falls on your racket. And particularly when things go against you or you get a few umpiring calls which you think are a little bit average, momentum seems to be swinging against you, it's great to see how a tennis player responds in that situation. When I grew up, I used to watch um, a lot of the old school players. I really enjoyed Stefan Edberg and he was a classic. He was a true gentleman of a tennis player. You would never know if he was losing, you wouldn't know if he was winning, you wouldn't know if he was nervous. He just had the same amount of sweat, the same amount of same image, his, 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 his technique never changed, he was always the same. You had to look at the scoreboard because you'd have no idea. On the other side of the spectrum, there's your John McEnroe's. <laughs> and they're cool, calm and collective. You knew when he was winning because he's not a worry in the world. He's strutting around the court, confident as you like. Uh, but boy, if there was an umpiring decision he didn't like, this was before Hawkeye, so there's a double fault or a net court he didn't agree with, rackets are being thrown, 12-year-old ball boys are being scarred, umpires are being yelled at, and usually he's starting off the Channel 9 news. I think opposition and difficulties have a way of bringing out the worst in us. And it's exactly the same in our Christian walk. When things are going well, life can be swimming. We go around, we're praising God, everything's great, not a care in the world. But when things turn, circumstances change, financial difficulties come our way, family marital difficulties come our way, ministry hits a bit of a wall, all of a sudden our Christian walk can get exposed for what it really is. Often opposition can bring out the worst in us. And that's why our response during those times and our response to opposition is so vitally important. And with that in mind, the text I wanted to focus on today is 1 Samuel 4 through to 7. And it's three chapters, it's a lot of material, we cover a lot of territory, so it's only going to be a high level look at this material. But it's really interesting on this idea of opposition, because in here we have the nation of Israel who face opposition in the form of the Philistines. They face them twice, or three times, but really on two separate occasions. And on those two occasions, they respond in two completely different ways 
for two completely different results. Now the context, as we get to 1 Samuel, obviously when you land in chapter 4, there's three chapters which have gone before you. This is the, the part in the Bible where his, Samuel's mother Hannah dedicates him to service under the high priest of the day that was Eli. And Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And those two sons had a very significant position. They're the sons of the high priest. But it says in verse 12 of chapter 2 that they had no regard for the Lord. Can you imagine that? Imagine if your priesthood, your, the, the heart of worship, had no regard for the Lord. And we find that in particular they're described as corrupting the offerings that were brought to the temple. And they corrupted it by rather than letting those offerings be given to God first and then for the leftovers and, and, and whatever might be left over to then be left for the priests, the priests were taking, the Hophni and Phinehas were taking the first cuts first before it was offered to God. They were completely flipping it around which was really uh, uh, corrupting that process of offering the first fruits to God. And in addition to that, they were engaging in forms of sexual immorality with various women in the nation. This was happening amongst the two sons of the high priest of the nation. And as a result, we get this famous passage where God speaks to Samuel. And he's still a young boy, well, we're not sure the age, but uh, he speaks to him at that time. He's not quite sure whether it's God speaking to him. So he goes to Eli and says, I've heard this thing. Eli, between them they figure out, well, maybe God's saying something here. And he proclaims a judgment there, which Eli didn't really want to hear. It was a very significant judgment on the nation of Israel. In verse 11 of chapter 3 it says, The Lord says to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. That's the backdrop to 1 Samuel 4. And what's interesting then is 1 Samuel 4 then starts quite abruptly. If you look at the second half of verse 1, it says, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. Now it's worth noting a couple of points here. The Philistines were not a huge nation but they were a very powerful nation. They had a very well trained army. They were very efficient at battle. They were generally thought of as conquering various, uh, various cities along the coast of what is now Syria and Palestine. They were a significant opposition. Israelites on the other hand had no permanent army. They were farms people. They pulled in herdsmen into these battles. God had delivered them amazing victories, but God had done that. If you looked at it on paper, you've got GWS versus Hawthorne. They're outdone here. Okay, They're the clear underdog. But in verse 1 we simply say, the Israelites just, they just went out. They just went out to fight the Philistines. There's no element of consultation here. There's no description of prayer. There's no putting it before God. They just... Take off and go. And what's the result? The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, it says in verse 2, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. 4,000 dead. Terrible defeat. Understandably, this causes a little bit of self-reflection. And in verse 3 we see the soldiers returned to camp and the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? That's a good question. That's the right question. Why has the Lord done this? 
He's given us amazing victories in the past but he hasn't done it now. What's different? That's a good question to ask. That's often the question we ask when we're faced with difficulties, isn't it? Why has God allowed this to happen? Why me? What did I do wrong? Interesting thing is they don't wait for an answer. They don't listen to hear the answer that, well, actually your priesthood is corrupt, your nation is filled with sin, there's idol worship amongst you. They don't listen for any of that or consider what needs to be done in that regard. They just keep on talking. Why the Lord bring this defeat against us? It says, let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. They come up with a good idea, they think. Why has God done this? Let's not listen. Let's just think about something we can do. Let's take the ark of God out there. That will fix it. All of a sudden that will solve our problems. It's a typical soldier suggestion because it was actually a pagan tradition to take idols of their gods out to battle with them as representation of that the god was amongst them during that battle. Leaders of that battle would even consult with these idols to get some guidance from the gods as to what they would do. So here the soldiers are thinking, well, let's do what they do. Let's take the ark out there. The ark is the symbol of, of our god and our nation. Let's take it out to battle with us. And the language is really interesting. It says, let's bring the ark out of the Lord with us so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. They're putting their faith in the ark. It's so that it may save us. Not that so much God might save us, so the ark might save us. They've turned the ark into a form of idol. They've turned it into some sort of religious charm that by appearing to rely on God in this way, he'll suddenly deliver them victory and he'll overlook everything that's wrong in here. He'll overlook all about the inward change that God was actually after. They completely overlook the deeper issues that are under the surface here amongst the nation and they simply go for some outward religious action, thinking surely that'll fix things. Often we can respond with outward religious action when it's really inward change that's required. You know, we see the result of this in 1 Samuel 4 for the rest of uh, up until verse 11. The Israelites take the ark into battle. They give a great shout. They're very confident this will make a big difference. And the Philistines are rattled because they've heard about this God. This is the God which inflicted all the plagues on Egypt. We've heard about the things that this God had done and they get nervous but they rally themselves and they say, be men and fight. And so they do. And it says in verse 10 of chapter 4, the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. 30,000. Seven and a half times bigger than the first defeat. You know, we spoke about today about remembering those who are lost in battle. This, we can read over these numbers and, and lose sight of the significance. That's potentially 30,000 women without husbands, 30,000 households without the fathers, 30,000 community members wiped out. That defeat marked a tragic day in Israel's history. And on top of it, 
the ark of the Lord is captured. It's taken to a Philistine city called Ashdod and Israel's lost to regroup and figure out what went wrong. In what ways have you responded to difficulties with outward action rather than inward change? Maybe you're facing difficulties in your marriage or in your household. Maybe you're facing difficulties in your workplace. Maybe you're facing difficulties in your ministry. Maybe you're feeling alone. You've lost friends and family and those times are hard. Often I think we can fall to our knees and say a quick five minute prayer and think that'll, that'll fix it. We flick to a passage in the Bible, we read that, we think okay I'm being, I'm being holy now, that, that should fix it. A friend of mine had a great quote that was drawn out of a commentator of this chapter. He said often this chapter highlights our tendency to change God from thou art worthy to thou art useful. We treat him as a God who's just useful for fixing things. And if we do something that's religious or if we do something that looks right, we think he'll just fix it. But God's not interested in our outward actions when there's deeper inward change that needs to be addressed. Now, I want to skip over the second half of 4 and move to 1 Samuel 5 because that's really where the story keeps going. See, the Philistines, they capture the ark and they take it back to a city called Ashdod. And the first five verses of chapter 5 say this, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now maybe if we just stop there. This is very interesting. So the Philistines, they bring the ark of the Lord, they put it into Dagon's temple at Dagon's feet. The idea being, he, this God, the God of Israel, would now be subservient to their God. He was put there almost as a, as, a, as a captive, as a trophy for the spoils of victory and to illustrate that Dagon had proved that he, was over, he had power over and control over the God of Israel. But they go into the temple and day one, Dagon's face down before the ark. They think, that's strange, must have been a strong wind last night, put it back up. Next day they go in, face down. Except this time it's even more significant. The head and the hands are broken off. That was very significant because the head symbolised to the people that their God had been conquered and the broken hand symbolised to the people that he had been rendered powerless. He had been both conquered and rendered powerless by the God of Israel. This was an outworking of the first commandment that says there would be no other God before him. There is to be no other God before him. There is no other God. He is the only true God. He is the one God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the great I Am. And there is no God which will reign over him. 
God stands, the God of Israel, our God stands above all. He has conquered all, he's conquered death, even to the point of Jesus on the cross conquering death once and for all and he's rendered the power of sin and the power of all spiritual opposition powerless. Church, no matter what spiritual opposition Satan may throw at us, we can take confidence in the fact that God has conquered it, that God has rendered it powerless and that he will overcome. But then it goes on from there and it focuses away from the God of the people to the people themselves. And what we see is the ark is in Ashdod and in verse 6 we read that it brings devastation upon them. So they think, okay, let's get it out of here and move it to Gath. And it says in verse 9, he afflicted that city with an outbreak of tumours. Let's get it out of there. Let's take it to Ekron. And it says in verse 11, death filled that city with panic and God's hand was heavy upon it. Until finally, in verse 12, it says, those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of the city went up to the heaven. It's a pretty striking passage because it shows that not only does God have complete control over all spiritual opposition, he has complete and utter control over all physical opposition and our physical circumstances. Just like he proved that he'd conquered and rendered powerless the God of the Philistines, so he was conquering and rendering powerless the Philistines themselves. Chapter 5 is so significant and it's a truth that we need to hold on to like nothing else because it reminds us that whatever difficulties or opposition or hardship or struggles or trials come our way, our God is greater. He's all-powerful, he's almighty, he's the beginning, he is the end, he has conquered all, he's rendered all things powerless, all things are on their knees before him, he has complete control over all things and he will overcome. He can overcome, he will overcome. Whether it's spiritual opposition, whether it's physical opposition, it makes no difference because our God reigns. Amen? That's chapter 5. And it's so important that it's in this part of the text because it reminds us that chapter 4 was no accident. If God wanted to defeat the Philistines then, he could have. He did it in chapter 5 without an army, so surely he could have done it in chapter 4 with an army. There was a deeper point behind chapter 4. The problem in chapter 4 is that the people were ignoring the sin. They were ignoring the inward change, the repentance, the change that God was looking for and they were simply relying on their works to make some sort of difference, to prove that God was useful. Now, if we truly believe that our God reigned over all these things, how would our lives be different? Now, we, we hear it a lot, but if we truly believed it, how would our lives be different? Now, I think we'd put aside our own agendas. I think we'd put aside our own objectives, our own financial goals, our personal plans, our own directions, our own priorities, because we would know that the Philistines will eventually come our way. I think Robin mentioned it earlier. It's not a matter of if opposition will come. It's a matter of when it comes. The Philistines are going to come. And if we truly knew that and we truly believed and had faith in the fact that God was our only way through it, that he's the only way we will overcome that, that opposition, then each and every day would be dedicated wholly to him, wouldn't it? Because we know he's our only hope. 
But we live in a world of self-reliance, don't we? Self-reliance to our own detriment. And so when opposition comes, rarely do we deal with it well. Think, I can get through that myself. I can sort this mess out. But we can't. We need God. We need to be right in here. And that's where chapter 7 comes in. I'm going to skip over chapter 6. There's a lot in there and I'd encourage you to read it and, and, and digest it a little bit after the talk today perhaps. Uh, but in essence in chapter 6, the Philistines have suffered enough. They say, get this thing out of here and they give the ark back to Israel and it ultimately ends up in a land called Kiriath Jerim. And that's where we arrive at chapter 7. And it's interesting, in verse 2, I'll pick it up, because it says, It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. I find that a really interesting verse, because they've just got the ark back. They've had the ark for 20 years. It was gone, but now it's back. There should be street parties, there should be celebrations, there should be amazing things going on now in 20 years because surely they've learnt their lesson and things are right now. The presence of God is back, the ark is back, but instead they mourn after the Lord. Literally it talks about lamenting or wailing after the Lord. It's like a funeral context where people come along and they lament and they wail because they've lost the presence of someone they love. They so desperately want it back but they know they never will get it. It's this context we have in verse 2 where it's, it's ironic almost because the ark is back with them but yet they're lamenting the presence of God. This tells us about that there were still issues in the heart of the people. There were still things which weren't right. It wasn't the presence of God that wasn't there. The ark was there. God was still amongst his people. It was the communion that had been broken. He was present amongst them but he was no longer in communion with them because the sin had not been dealt with. And this is what sin does in our life, isn't it? It's a perfect illustration of sin because when we sin, which we do each day, believe me, I just look at myself and I think, how surely I can stop this at some point. He doesn't pack up his bags and leave. He doesn't take his Holy Spirit from us. That Holy Spirit is a deposit that's here to stay. His presence is there, but it's the communion with that Holy Spirit which is damaged by sin. And if that's left undealt with over a time, it's as if God's no longer with us. It's as if he's abandoned us, but he hasn't. It's that communion which has been broken. And that's what the people are feeling in verse 2 of chapter 7. You know, we've got to ask the question, what sin is in our life which is causing God to be present amongst us but not in communion with us? There can be idols in our life, not the bales and the asterisks, but sport, our financial goals, our careers. There can be conflict among us. There can be self-centeredness and pride and greed. We can just put ourselves first before God, whatever the sin is. The longer these sins are left unresolved, the more they damage our communion with God. And so listen to what Samuel says, verses 3 to 6. 
He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, it's interesting, isn't it? Not if God returns to you. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and their asterisks and serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water, poured it out before the Lord and on that day they fasted and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. There's no qualifications there. There's no self-defence. There's no justifying their actions. Straight out confession. We have sinned. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. Here we see Samuel gathering together the whole nation and we see repentance, don't we? He tells them, return to the Lord, rid yourselves of sin and rededicate your lives to him. That is true form of repentance. Return to the Lord, rid yourselves of sin and rededicate yourself to the Lord. That's the example that's set before us in Samuel because wherever there is sin, there must be repentance. But we sin every day, but we repent so rarely. And it's our communion with God which suffers. This is where Jesus Christ enters the narrative though because here we have a picture of Old Testament repentance where Samuel as the, as, the, as the priest, the high priest was interceding on behalf of the people. He was offering up prayers to God. He was facilitating offerings that were put to God so that God would overlook the sin of the people. That's Old Testament repentance. But we have a new high priest, don't we? And we read about that in Hebrews before that Jesus Christ has come as the great and the eternal high priest And he died on the cross once and for all so that we wouldn't need to make these offerings anymore. We simply come to God and we say, we have sinned against the Lord. And what does scripture say? He's faithful and just and he forgives us of all unrighteousness. That's new covenant repentance. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he achieved on the cross. That's what we remember this morning. That's the gospel. Where there is sin, there must be repentance. But where there is genuine, heartfelt repentance from his people, Jesus Christ offers forgiveness and new life. And that communion with God can be restored. Church, this is all about getting the fundamentals right before the Philistines come. They're not even on the scene yet. We haven't got to the Philistines in chapter 7. They're just getting the fundamentals right. They're getting the inner change right before the opposition comes we need to get the fundamentals right before the difficulties come because if we don't and the difficulties come history says we don't deal with it well it brings out the worst in us and can really damage our Christian walk The Philistines, then they emerge. They, they see what's happening and it would have been easy to mistake what was happening at Mizpah because Mizpah was all about repentance and purification but it would have been observed by the Philistines as a call to arms, an uprising. And so they charge at them again into battle but the response of the people is so different this time. They've already fasted and confessed and made offerings to God. They've, they've, they've acted on the inner change that was required. 
And then they say to Samuel, can you please cry out to God on our behalf? They consult with him. And Samuel does that. He intercedes for them. He makes offerings to them. And it says, the day of the Lord came with a thunder. And he spread them into confusion. And it says in verse 11, the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. God delivered them victory because their response was so completely different. They had gotten the fundamentals right. They hadn't responded on their works or their outward forms of religion that addressed the inner change and they had faith in the fact that, our, that their God reigns, that our God reigns. Ultimately, they responded with a repentant and a dependent heart. That's the key to their response. They didn't rely on their own works. They responded with a repentant and a dependent heart, thinking, God, if, you're gonna, if we're going to win this, you've got to win it, because we can't. They responded with a repentant heart and a dependent heart. In memory of this occasion, in verses 12 and 13, Samuel sets up a stone and he calls it Ebenezer because that meant the stone of help. And he says, thus far the Lord has helped us. And that's a great image for this, that this text finishes on because it reminds us that our God ultimately is a God of help. He wants to help us through these times. He doesn't leave us alone to deal with our struggles and our hardships on our own. He helps us. He wants to be there beside us. He wants to be our refuge in times of difficulties. He wants to be our peace in times of hardship. He wants to provide us with comfort when we need comfort. Our God is a God of help. But when we rely on our mere outward religion, when we rely on our works, rarely do we experience that help in the way we could. That help of God, that true communion with God, that's only truly experienced when we have faith that he will overcome, that we can overcome through him and we turn to him with a repentant and a dependent heart. Church, we're all going to face Philistines in one form or another. It's going to come. At some point in our lives, if it's not at the moment, it will come. The key is how we respond. Are we going to respond with outward actions at the expense of inner change or are we going to get the fundamentals right before those times come so that we're ready And we have faith in the fact that we can overcome with God when we turn to him with a repentant and a dependent heart. Now my prayer is that this truth wouldn't just be principles that we learn about, we might be remembered about when we look at 1 Samuel, but when we go out the door and we face difficulties, these principles are a safeguard. They can provide us with peace and assurance that we know that whatever comes our way Our God reigns. He will reign. 
He will come again and remove all this stuff. He's overpowered it, he's conquered, he's rendered it powerless, he's done all those things. And we can overcome through him. When we respond with a repentant and a dependent heart. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you that you are our helper, God. That you help us through any circumstances. Lord, we thank you that there is nothing, whether spiritual or physical, that you have not completely conquered and rendered powerless and that we cannot overcome through you. Lord, may we have faith in that and not rely on our own actions or our own strength or our own works, but that we would be daily repenting of our sins before you, seeking your forgiveness, restoring that communion so that we can move forward in full dependence, knowing that you reign, that you aren't a God who's useful, you're a God who is worthy, worthy of all glory and all honour and all praise forever and ever. Amen.